Let me ask you to turn back in your Bibles once again to Revelation chapter 6. Now let's be perfectly honest for a moment. How many of you get confused when you read the book of Revelation? Right? Yeah. Most of us either were, uh, were saying, yeah, I do, or you haven't tried. <laughs> When you read it, you might find, you'll, you will find individual portions that are glorious or awesome or maybe terrible or confusing that encourage hope and joy. But when you look at the whole of the book of Revelation, you're, you're, it's hard to recognize the continuity. How, how does it all fit together? How do I make sense of this entire revelation entrusted to us through the Apostle John? Now, I've said several times, and I'll say again, the theme of the book of Revelation is the glorious triumph of the Lord Jesus Christ over all his and our enemies, and that he shares that victory, that triumph with us, his people. I want to take a few minutes this morning, though, and just as, as our introduction, I want to uh, give a brief overview, sort of the blueprint, the lay of the land of the book of Revelation. Now, we're not going to, you know, do an, a full overview, but I want you to see that there is actually some design here. There's purposefulness as we proceed through this book. And if you understand this, this overall design, it really will help in understanding and making sense of what we're about to read this morning and the successive portions of this book. It'll also help us keep, keep or prevent us from wandering off into theological silliness or confusion. Now, up to this point, we've looked at chapter 1, which is an introduction, where John is commissioned to write down the vision that he receives from the Lord. And then we have, in chapters 2 and 3, the messages to the seven churches. And in the last couple of weeks, we've looked at chapters 4 and 5, this glorious vision of the heaven and all heaven and even all of earth worshiping the Father and worshiping before the Lamb, the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all of that so far makes sense. We have a good idea what to do with what we have already looked at. But now we come to chapter 6, and it's as if we're standing on the edge of a prophetic precipice. We gaze over this edge at the mysterious visions about seals and trumpets and bowls and angels and armies, dragons and beasts and false prophets and the kings of the earth. We read about destruction, about warfare and earthquakes, pestilence and the wrath of God. And of course we read of the triumphal return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the wonder and the glories of the new heaven and the new earth to come. But... As we read through, we need to ask the question, how does this all fit together? How do I make sense of where I am in the midst of this revelation? Because we do not want to lose the forest for the trees. We don't want to, we don't want to just, just focus on little portions but have a big picture view. So I want to give you a general overview or, or the, the plan, how revelation is laid out for us. First of all, I don't believe we should read Revelation as a linear chronology of all of church history. There's some who believe that. They're called historicists. That Revelation is a prophetic history of the church from the time it's written up until Jesus comes back, whenever that is. 
And people who believe this identify things like the Islamic invasion of the 700s. They identify the Reformation. And inevitably, whatever age they are in, they always believe theirs is the last generation. And they, they identify certain, certain points in Revelation to that effect. But those generations, many of them have passed. It's also not a linear chronology of what takes place immediately previous prior to the Lord's return, which seems to kind of ignore what's been taking place for nearly 2,000 years. Now, there's some, and by the way, that, that, uh, that view is called the futuristic uh, view of Revelation. Futurists believe it's all future until the last times come, whenever that may be. There are some who believe that Revelation is really speaking about that current generation. As Jesus spoke to John about these seven churches, he was warning them about what Rome was going to do in the fall of Jerusalem. They believe an early date for the writing of Revelation, by the way. And they believe that in the, uh, the, uh, the tax, the, the, uh, the persecution that is getting ready to start, that's what it's really talking about. And that view called preterism. It's actually a number of Reformed people who believe that, that are good scholars. But again, I I don't agree that that really sums up this book. I think we can find elements of all three of those interpretations here, but I think the best, and I don't like this term necessarily, it's called idealism. I'm not sure why. But I think the best understanding of this book is that it is a series of visions, seven visions, seven cycles of the same basic information leading the, the outpouring of God's wrath through the however many centuries from that time until Jesus comes back, culminating in the final cataclysm and then the return of the Lord Jesus. So the book of Revelation is telling us what is going to happen from the time it's given until his return. It describes spiritual warfare that is at work throughout the church age, not a chronology per se, but rather a description of the kind of conflict that is always going to exist throughout this age. And the visions depict this cosmic rebellion against God and the wrath of God poured out upon those who rebel and the victory of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, and the final consummation of all things with the new heaven and the new earth. In chapter 1, verse 19, the Lord tells John, he commissions him, he says, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that things that are to take place after this. And I believe the things you have seen is pointing to chapter 1. I have seen this vision and God has commissioned me. The things that are, I believe, uh, points to chapters 2 and 3. This is the status of these seven churches that Jesus has addressed. Now those seven churches were literal churches. And I believe this, book, this letter, this book was written and taken and read to each of those churches. But I also believe those churches are representative of every church in every age, in every land. So it applies to us as well. Those are the things that are. But then those things that are to take place after this is the rest of the book from chapter 4 all the way to the end in chapter 22. And Jesus is directing our attention to those things that would take place. And what we find here are seven visions, seven repeating cycles. They're not successive. They are overlapping. It's like John is receiving the same story in vision form seven times over with increasing intensity from different perspectives, but always culminating in the glorious return of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and the destruction of God's enemies. So as we go through our study, I want you to be conscious that we are in a particular vision, a particular cycle. I'm going to talk about that. I'm going to say we're in the fourth cycle, but right now we're in the first cycle. And we're going to see uh, where we are in that cycle. There's a repeating pattern. I'm almost done with this introduction, by the way. But there's a repeating pattern. We'll see this morning as we go through uh, that, first of all, there's this opening scene. Where, the, which, uh, where these judgments are coming from. And, and in, this, in this case, it's the Lord Jesus himself holding the scroll and breaking the seals and announcing judgment. He's the one who breaks the seals, initiating judgment. So it's the originating, opening scene. And then there are six outpourings of judgment that take place next. And we find that in the opening of the six seals of judgment contained in chapter 6. But then there's an interlude. Again, almost exactly every time, seven times, there's an interlude about God's protection for the church. And that's what we find in chapter 7, is God sealing the 144,000 and protecting them. And drawing to himself a great multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation, it says. By the way, at the end of the sixth seal, you have the great men and the poor men of the earth crying out on the rocks and the mountains to fall upon them to protect them from the wrath of the lamb that's the end and it's happening at the end of chapter six because it's part of these cycles and then you have finally the seventh climactic judgment and the victory of the lord jesus now it doesn't always say jesus comes back in this case chapter eight verse one says that uh, the Lamb opens the second seal, seventh seal, and there's silence in heaven. And what we find coming out of that seventh seal is the next vision and the next cycle of judgments, which are simply a repeat uh, of this cycle. So we're going to see these seven repeating cycles as we go through our study, and they increase in intensity uh, leading up to that final consummation. But the thing I want you to hold on to, no matter how chaotic it may look, No matter how confusing and how troubling these circumstances are about which we read, Jesus is in control. He reigns. He is sovereign. All authority has been given to him and judgment has been entrusted to his hands. You recall in chapter 5, God the Father holds forth the scroll and they say, Who is worthy to open the seals and read its contents? And the Lamb, the Lion of the tribe of Judah... The Lamb who was slain, the Lord Jesus, alone is worthy to break the seals, open the scrolls. And so now, chapter 6, we have that very thing taking place. And you recall Jesus is revealed as standing uh, in the midst of the throne among the four living creatures, which are these great angelic beings. And so now each of the four living creatures are employed to pronounce these four seals, crying out, come. And here we find these four horses carrying what has come to be known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's a a term that has taken on uh, huge significance throughout our culture. Uh, Not used as much now, but it, it has been used a lot in days gone by. In fact, the four of the most famous atheistic professor lecturers were dubbed the four horsemen of atheism, Dawkins and 
and his friends. So as we look through this, don't lose sight that everything that happens is under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus. That said, let's look then at the four horsemen, the four seals. The first seal, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6, I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. Now, how do we know we can't take Revelation literally, other than the fact that we know it's apocalyptic literature? Well, here's one reason. Because you have a scroll rolled up with seven seals. How could you read anything in the scroll until all seven are broken, right? It's not seven scrolls, it's seven seals of one scroll. But as Jesus breaks each seal, he's able to read that which is there. It's a vision. It's to be taken symbolically. Keep that in mind. So here we find this horse, a white horse. And and, and a horse in that day was a symbol of power. It's interesting. We went to Charleston last week uh, with some of the uh, college students. And you've got these horses just kind of lumbering through town, pulling these carriages with tourists. And they've got a, a diaper bag hanging in the back. Not a whole lot of dignity or power in there, right? But that's not what we find here. Find this majestic, powerful horse with a rider who is is, is armed with a bow and has a crown upon his head. Who has come out, who comes out conquering and to conquer. Now, in Revelation chapter 19, we also find a white horse coming in triumph. It's the Lord Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth. And so there are many good scholars based on that who say this must be speaking of the progress of the gospel. And the other horses with their destruction and calamity are the persecution that follows wherever the gospel goes. I don't think that fits the context. I really don't. I think all four are outpourings of judgment that indicate calamity. And it makes perfect sense because in Rome, when Rome conquered a city, when Rome conquered a country, the conquering general would ride into town on a white horse. It's a symbol, it's an emblem of conquest. He holds in his hands a bow. A bow is always a military weapon, a symbol of military power. The crown is not a royal crown. It's the crown given to a victor or a conqueror. Albert Barnes says the whole description is a representation of the triumph of war, not the gospel of peace. So it's about conquest. The first calamity that's unleashed on the world by this first horseman is the conquest, the conquering at the hands of military nations or military powers. In John's day, that was Rome. And they were conquering and building and expanding their empire. But through the ages, there has been this continuing stream of conquering and oppression and building of empires. In 410 AD, the Visigoths came in and sacked Rome and built their empire. Between 610 and 750, the Islamic invasion began and swept throughout much of Europe. In the 1200s, 1300s, over in Asia, Genghis Khan, Kublai Khan establishing their empires throughout China and parts of Russia. In the 1500s and forward, we find all of, virtually all of the, uh, of the advanced 
for that day, uh, European nations carving up Africa and South America and North America to establish their empires, oftentimes with no mercy and great violence. During those times, Spain and Portugal and England and France and Germany were all at war with each other, killing one another as well. In the early 1800s, we find the Napoleonic Wars. There were the religious wars that took place during the Counter-Reformation in England and France and Spain. In the 1900s, Hitler sought to establish, spread the Third Reich of Nazi Germany. At the same time, Japan conquered most of Asia with great cruelty. After World War II, the Soviet Empire began to spread with great harm. In our own 21st century, we see ISIS seeking to establish this, this uh, or reestablish this Islamic caliphate. And my point here is that violent military conquests have been going on throughout the age of the church. And generation by generation, people would look at that and say, this must be the end times. Not yet. In fact, the Lord Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 24, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. And so we look at Putin's invasion of Ukraine. And it's as horrific and merciless and cruel as it all is. It's just one more in this endless stream of conquest that Jesus told us was going to happen. And while a Roman general would ride in looking glorious in his victory on his white horse, those he conquered were cruelly, cruelly crushed. So what I want us to see here, guys... Revelation ought to shape the way we see world events. We look at a world and we think it's out of control. I can remember as a teenager sitting on my bed reading my Bible and Isaiah saying, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. And I remember reading that and saying, Lord, is it possible? This would be in 1975 probably. Is it possible That the Soviet Union, as huge and powerful and threatening and ominous as it is, I didn't use those words then, but is it possible that to you it is as a drop in the bucket? Really? My faith is so small. My worldview of who you are and who the world is is so distorted. Help me see things the way you see things. And I was stunned. Stunned. I guess it was 1989 or so when the Iron Wall, Iron Curtain just collapsed. The Soviet Union just collapsed overnight. And nation after nation, we talk of this domino theory, we were concerned about the spread of communism. But the dominoes began to fall and the control of the Soviet Union over all these other Eastern European nations toppled. Because God is in control. And to him, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. So recognize God uses even treachery for his purposes. And Habakkuk, Habakkuk is looking at the evil that is, is, is rife. It's, it's, it's predominating his own Jewish people. 
and saying, God, how can you allow this evil to continue? Why won't you put an end to it? And God says, Habakkuk, don't worry. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to put an end to it. I'm going to send the Chaldeans in and they're going to destroy. And Habakkuk was like, you're going to do what? And God said, but don't worry because then I'm going to judge the Chaldeans for their wickedness against my people. They will be my instrument of judgment, but they themselves will be judged for their evil as they carry out their designs. God is sovereign. He's sovereign over the wicked acts of evil rulers and conquerors. Because the heart of the king and the heart of the general is indeed in the hand of the Lord. We find the second seal in verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. Now, when I was in seminary, they said, always pay attention to the prepositions. It's interesting to me, I didn't see a single commentator talk about where it says, out came another horse. I didn't hear, see a single one. I might have missed somebody, but out of what? Did they come out of the throne room? Or did they actually come out of the scroll itself? It's a vision. It's not to be taken literally. But I think in the vision, that's where the horse, as it emerges from this scroll... And we see the second bright red horse. The Greek means a fiery red horse signifying death and destruction. And that's what we find from this second horseman. It says the rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. Who gave this rider permission to take peace from the earth and incite men to slay one another? Well, that's where we delve into the mysterious providences of God, isn't it? It doesn't say that Satan put that in his heart. God is sovereign over even the evil of wicked men. In Acts 2, it says that those who crucified Jesus did what God's sovereign purpose had ordained beforehand they would do. And yet they were guilty of their sin. But God restrains our evil. It's not that he puts evil into our heart that's not already there. When God hardens Pharaoh's heart, as we read about in Exodus, it's not that God is taking a man with a pliable, soft heart, wanting to repent and hardening it against his will. He's doing what Pharaoh is already inclined to do. It's a judgmental hardening. But he restrains the wickedness of men. And when he releases that and gives men over to their own devices... We find these kind of things taking place. So for his sovereign purposes, at various times throughout history, he permits great evil to take place. Now, God is not the author of sin. I want to be very clear. God did not ordain the sinfulness of their actions, but he ordained to use their actions, which were sin. And you can say, Pastor, can you just explain that a little bit for me? My answer is, no, not really. Because God's sovereignty, his providence is mysterious. It's beyond our ability to understand. But we know God is perfect and righteous and holy. And we know he's in control of even the worst things that happen in our world. Turn with me to Matthew 24, if you will. I read, I quoted one verse from it, but I want to, I want to read the entire uh, portion there. Matthew chapter 24. Keep your finger in Revelation so you can get back to it quickly, but... Matthew 24, I'm going to begin reading in verse 3. 
Matthew 24, 3 tells us that he, the Lord Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. So this is a private conversation. Saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Sounds like people asking that same question throughout history all the way up to our present day, right? He doesn't give them a date or a time. He doesn't even give them a definite indication. He says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of war. See that you're not alarmed for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. So I hear people telling me, oh, we see wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes. It must be the end. But Jesus said, that's just the beginning. And these birth pains continue up to our very day. I looked up an article on Wikipedia this yesterday uh, entitled List of Wars. You want, if you want to check out what I'm saying, go just... List of wars in Wikipedia. What you'll find is there are 46 wars they identify. Wars or insurgencies or armed conflicts that are ongoing right now in our world. 46. See, we think Ukraine is the only place where wars taking place. It actually tells us there are 60, excuse me, there are 16 countries in our world today where at least 1,500 people died in 2021 as a result of these wars, insurgencies, armed conflicts. 16 nations with at least 1,500 casualties, deaths. Ten of those nations are in the continent of Africa, which we don't really comprehend a whole lot many times. But this is what we've seen throughout human history, men killing one another. The second horseman is active and has been active for a very long time, and his influence is pervasive throughout the world. Now, in some cases, that warfare is directly, is directed right at the people of God, where God's people are targeted and the objects of attacks. There's a, a, a website called the Esther Project. They, uh, they take information they gather from things like Voice of the Martyrs and other, uh, and they develop, they, they, pro- they provide statistics for the persecuted church of what's going on in our world today. And the statistics are pretty shocking. They tell us that over 70 million Christians have been martyred over the course of the history of the church. 70 million. And here's what's shocking. More than half of them were killed in the 20th century. And the majority of those under communist and fascist governments, not Hindu, not Islamic, but government persecution. In the 21st century, somewhere between 100,000 and 160,000 Christians are slaughtered for their faith every single year. They document somewhere around 1.1 million who were killed from in the first decade of the 21st century. Century Again, primarily taking place in Asia and Africa, and we're not as connected or in tune with those parts of the world. Our U.S. State Department, the U.S. State Department, a secular organization, identifies more than 60 countries where 
Christians faced persecution from either their government or their neighbors because of their faith. Today. Now you may be tempted to hear that and say, where is God in all this? Why does he allow his people to suffer so? But we go back and we realize it's all written in a scroll. If the world is all there is, this would be dire. It would be catastrophic. But Revelation relentlessly points us to eternity, to the new heaven, to the new earth, to the glory that so is, is so glorious it far outweighs present suffering. And everything that happens as troubling and as terrifying as it may be, it is all according to God's sovereign plan carried out under his rule according to his wisdom his power his authority and yes even his love now we've seen throughout history God uses persecution to build his church we've seen that over and over again Chinese communism expelled all of the missionaries from their land in 1949 And they closed, they sealed up their country so no information could get out. I had a missions professor, Dr. Charlie Culpepper, who when I studied under him was in his 80s. And Dr. Charlie had spent a couple of decades in China before he was expelled in 1949. He knew nothing. I was in his class when the wall started coming down and the information started leaking out. And we found that the church had not been extinguished. In fact, the church had exploded and there were tens or even hundreds of millions of believers in the nation of China in spite of the most severe repression the Chinese government could bring out upon them. Dr. Charlie could barely contain his joy, as you could imagine. God has used persecution. And in fact, I'm told there are Chinese believers who pray for us. Because the safety and security we enjoy sometimes can make us way too soft. I read in the book, Insanity of God, over here we tell you our credentials, what seminary we went to. Over there they tell you how many years they spent in prison. That's their credentials as faithful pastors of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The king of the church knows how to build his church. When we come to the third seal... Verses 5 and 6 in Revelation chapter 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and the wine. That sounds mysterious, doesn't it? One thing that's not very mysterious is when you say a rider on a black horse, you think this can't be good, right? And he's, he, he's, he's got this scale in his hand, and he's measuring on the scale this paltry amount of food, and he says a denarius for one quart of wheat. Now, a quart of wheat was basically enough for one person for one day, and a denarius was one day's wage. So basically what he's saying is there is shortage, there is, uh, there is uh, famine such that it takes an entire day's wage simply to feed the worker. How does he feed his family? How does he clothe them? How does he house them? 
How does he pay for medical supplies or other essentials? There's deprivation coming in this third seal by the rider of the black horse. And in our world today and throughout our world, we've seen famine. We've seen deprivation. We've seen people starving to death. And it's particularly intense during times of war. In fact, in some places, famine and food deprivation is actually an instrument of war. You read about what's going on in the Ukraine. Cities under siege and they're running out of food and water and other essential supplies. That's the third rider on the horse. And yet we have the Lord Jesus who's the bread of life, don't we? He's the fountain of living water. And he promises that whatever we may endure in this life, there will be a banquet for us in heaven that will be beyond our imagination. And whatever horrors we endure in this life, and they, they, they can be painfully horrible, but they're designed of the Lord to wean us from a dependence on the world, from a love for the world, from looking to the world to satisfy the deepest longings of our heart, from relying on the arm of flesh, but rather teach us to rely on the one who loves us and gave himself for us. These are instruments in God's hand to cause us to look to him. Well, finally, we come to this fourth seal in verse 7 and 8. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come! And I looked, and behold, a pale horse. And its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. This is the only horseman that's named. And his name is Death. Now, all the other three horsemen, Death certainly accompanies them. But he's riding a a pale horse. That word there translated pale, it actually means green. It's the same word that uh, describes the grass that Jesus had his disciples to sit down on when he was teaching them or when he was getting ready to feed the 5,000. Green is wonderful for grass. It's not so good for people, right? Or for horses. NASB translates it ashen, an ashen horse, a horse that it looks really like death, warmed over. And Jesus, you remember, tells us, he holds the keys of death and Hades. Here we have this horse with a rider whose name is death, and accompanying him closely behind is Hades. And verse 8 tells us death has many tools at its disposal. See, the red horse incited men to kill each other. But the black horse, the rider on the black horse, he is death. He kills with sword and with famine and with pestilence and with wild beasts throughout the earth. That is reflective of Ezekiel chapter 14 verse 21. God says, I will send upon Jerusalem my four disastrous acts of judgment. Sword, famine, wild beast, and pestilence to cut it, cut from it man and beast. Remember Revelation frequently alludes to or references Old Testament prophecies. We find the very four Same four elements of judgment there. You know, in our sophistication, we we put a man on the moon, right? We're sending a a, a rover to Mars that that it can land, a a rocket lands on Mars, and this, this, this rover golf cart sort of thing comes out, and we can control it from here, and it goes around and takes pictures. We can do just about anything. 
We think we can control our environment and create a safe and secure world. You know, it's funny, a hundred years ago they thought the same thing. World War I was so horrific, they said, this is the war to end all wars. It didn't turn out so well, did it? No war could possibly be as terrible as this one, but that was just a harbinger of what was to come throughout the rest of the 20th century. See, we think we can overcome famine and pestilence and, 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 and wild beasts and warfare itself, but just stop and reflect for a minute on the panic and the terror that gripped sophisticated, advanced, technologically prosperous countries because of COVID. How much tension that caused, even in our own church, in our communities, and in other parts of our nation and throughout the world. We're not all that. We're just not. And we have the idea that we have the world by the tail, and then the Lord shows us once again with this fourth horse, no, you don't. Now, I want to be very careful here. Can we identify a set of societal sins and say God sent COVID to judge the world because of these particular sins? Can we connect those dots and draw those lines? I would say don't. Remember the disciples saw a man who was born blind and said, Master, was that because of his sin or his parents' sin? Trying to connect the dots. Well, clearly blindness is a result that we live under the curse, but it wasn't a result of that man's sin or his parents' sins. So be careful about connecting dots too, too quickly or too presumptuously. But we can say this. The scrolls contained covid they contain God's sovereign plan for judging the sin of the world. And anytime you have pestilence, anytime you have war, any, it's, it's, it's an act of God's judgment, not necessarily against a particular people or a particular time, but on the world which is under his curse. And it's a foreshadowing of what is to come. It's a messenger of God's providence to remind us just how vulnerable we truly are so we will not rely on the arm of flesh, no matter how highly sophisticated or technologically advanced we might become. But notice here that this rider named Death was given authority over one quarter of the earth. Now, we're not talking about one cataclysmic event. It's not an atomic explosion that kills a quarter of the world's population. That's not the point. But rather, the emphasis is that God has limited its impact. He said, this far and no further. He's in control, even over these calamities, when they happen, how they happen, where they happen, who they impact, and how many people are impacted by it. He has limited the power and the destruction, the calamity of these four horsemen of the apocalypse. But this death is the fourth instrument in the hands of God of judgment on the world, whether it's through death, or excuse me, whether it's warfare or civil unrest, or famine, or deprivation, or, or pestilence, or, or, or any number of these other causes. And when we see these things unfold in real time, it strikes terror into the hearts of men. 
But I want you to see this. Nowhere in the book of Revelation do we see these calamitous events called messengers of Satan. Nowhere do we see Satan in control of these judgments. They are from God. He is sovereign. He is under control. And he's rich in mercy. He truly is. All four of the riders are summoned and they're sent by the Lord Jesus. Not in opposition to God's plan, but in the fulfillment of his plan. So as we draw this to a close, we need to ask questions. So what do we make of all this? How are we supposed to to think about what we've just read? And how is that supposed to shape our, our faith? Well, four things I would encourage you to take home with you. First of all, be biblically informed. Yes, it's fine, read your newspaper or, or, or follow the news, but do so with your Bible in your hand and in your mind. Develop a biblical worldview and a framework through which to interpret the seemingly chaotic events of our world. Not so that you can have assign prophetic significance to this detail or to that detail. Ah, this must be that and that must be the other. One of the classic examples of assigning prophetic details to current events. Uh, Later on in Revelation, it talks about these locusts who had tails of a scorpion. And somewhere early in my Christian experience, I read someone say that those were attack helicopters. And I was talking to a brother that I had just met a number of months ago, and he said, what are you preaching through? And I said, Revelation. And I, and, and I said, you know, I'm trying to stay away from a lot of the silliness and, and, and assigning things, you know, that, that, you know, finding stuff there that's not really there, like, like, like the locusts. And he says, yeah, that are attack helicopters. See, so he, he'd heard it too, right? I'm not making this up. But somebody's making up a bunch of nonsense. So as we read, as we pay attention to world events, do so with a biblically informed worldview. Not that we can say this must be that and that must be the other, but recognize that we have a God in heaven who rules and reigns. He has given all authority to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he will bring judgment into the world. And he will establish his kingdom over this world of sin. He will create a new heaven and a new earth. Now, it's legitimate for us. It's not enough to say, oh, this is from God, so we'll just fold our hands and not worry about it. No, it's legitimate for us to do what we can to alleviate suffering. When the... COVID crisis hit, and New York was in terrible condition. Samaritan's Purse set up a mobile hospital in Central Park to provide care because they had gone to the Ebola crisis in Africa, and they knew how to handle infectious control. When the war in Ukraine broke out, when the invasion happened that very week, Samaritan's Purse sent a plane load of their mobile hospital and surgeons and nurses and medical supplies and food to alleviate suffering. So yes, we should do what we can to alleviate suffering, absolutely. But recognize it is not out of control. This is God at work in his world. He is sending the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Secondly, you need to ask yourself, where am I putting my trust? Am I trusting economic prosperity and stability? A full pantry and a full refrigerator? Am I trusting that we have a strong military? Nobody's going to invade us. Really? Really? Tell that to the people in the Twin Towers. Are we going to trust local law enforcement 
That's not gone so well in recent years, has it, in parts of our own country? Are we going to trust medical advances and vaccines and modern cures? They've certainly helped. But people still get deathly diseases, and we can't eradicate them. Are we going to trust our advanced agricultural technology? Sorry, Josh. Some of you all know Josh Thompson sells agricultural supplies. That's his business. And they feed hungry people all over the world. But we cannot eradicate famine because we can't eradicate the sinful acts of men that use war and even use food as weapons of war. Psalm 20 verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. That's where our confidence must be. Now, yes, we ought to make legitimate provisions. We ought to make use of those legitimate means God has provided. In Proverbs 21, 31, it said, The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. It's fine to have a good military and police force and fire department and all the rest, but our trust is not in them. My house catches on fire. I'm going to call 911 and I'm going to pray. Our trust is not in man and it's not in the arm of flesh. Our hope is in the arm of the Lord. A little bit longer quote here, but I want you to hear this. Dennis Johnson, one of the commentators, says, The dangers and the disasters that shatter and dismantle arrogant civilizations. And he says, for instance, Rome in John's day. Which are symbolized in the four horsemen and most of the trumpets are the Lamb's providential instruments of pre-wrath wrath. In other words, it's not the final outpouring. And pre-judgment justice. Foreshadowing the end when God's victory over his enemies will be total. As Christians, we see societies crumble and collapse. Our response should not be terrified alarm. As though our security were bound up with a fragile human network of law and order. But anticipation and confidence. The Lamb is now on the throne with God's plan for history firmly in his hand. Amen. So, where's your trust? It should be in the Lord. And if so, then you can be confident. You can be at peace. You don't have to wring your hands. And say, I don't know what this world is coming to. We know what the world is coming to. We don't know all the details and how it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But we know. We don't have to live in fear. We don't have to be insecure. It's amazing to me how secure and at peace many Christians are around the world who face daily threat of death and persecution. And yet they're at peace. And when we get our feelings hurt, it somehow throws us for a loop. That's why the Chinese Christians pray for us. Our confidence is that Jesus is on his throne. The psalmist says, why do the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. He is sovereign over every jot and tittle that's written on that scroll. Every detail of human history is in his hand. Every detail of your story is in his hand. And you can trust him. Whatever he brings your way. And finally, be steadfast. The world that you and I live in is not all there is. There's chaos, there's calamity, there's suffering, there's terrible things all around us. And we see that and Jesus tells us to expect it. But there's a resurrection. There's a confidence, there's a victory to come. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul spends the entire chapter arguing that in fact the resurrection did take place. Jesus rose from the grave. He triumphed over sin and death. We will too. 
And in fact, at the end of the discussion, he says this. He says, oh, death, where's your victory? Oh, oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at what's going on in the four horsemen and the damage and calamity they, 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 they wreak upon this world, we can say, death, where is your victory? Death, where's your sting? Because we know how it ends. We know the end of the story. We know Jesus conquers his enemies. And he shares that victory with us. Next week we're going to look at the fifth seal. Which is the martyrs crying out from the throne. Saying how long O Lord until you avenge our blood. On those who killed us for our faith. See the goal of the Christian life is not simply to stay alive in this world. The goal of the Christian life is to be faithful to the Lord Jesus until the very end. That is overcoming. That is conquering. That is victory. And so at the very end of this wonderful chapter in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul tells us the glory of the resurrection that death is swallowed up in victory he says therefore as a result because of that be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord because you know your faith is not in vain in the Lord Amen